This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. If there are women at the table in a peace process, the peace process is likely to survive and be implemented. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Rose Gottmuller recently stepped down from her role as Deputy Secretary General of NATO. She was the highest-ranking civilian woman in the alliance's 70-year history. Gottmuller prioritized NATO's efforts to integrate women's perspectives in its work and was a champion for gender balance in the alliance. Prior to her NATO role, Gottmuller was the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and served concurrently as Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance. While there, she was the U.S.'s lead negotiator for the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, known as New START. And she was the first woman ever to lead a strategic nuclear reduction negotiation. I spoke with Rose about the importance of international alliances, her experience as a lead negotiator, and her career in public service. Rose, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Let's first talk about NATO. You spent three years in Brussels, and you just recently departed as the alliance is celebrating its 70th anniversary. What do you see as the number one challenge facing NATO today? The number one challenge facing NATO is always to stay ahead of what threats and challenges are coming at it over the horizon. And for a military alliance that is engaged day in, day out in operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, still continuing to support the K4 security operation uh, in Kosovo, that means that there is a lot that the alliance is doing day in, day out, and it's not always easy to see what kind of threats could come over the horizon and, and bite NATO. So that necessity of being able to adapt to whatever new threats emerge, that's a big challenge for NATO. And what are some of the new threats that concern you? Some are old threats that are taking new forms. The Russian Federation, for example, was, as the Soviet Union in the height of the Cold War, was the biggest challenge for NATO. And then there were about 20 years where we hoped actually after the end of the Cold War where we could uh, be friends with Russia, but it didn't work out. Russia seized Crimea. Russia destabilized the Donbass and and began to in Ukraine in Ukraine and began to bring more forces uh, up against NATO's borders, particularly in the Baltic states. And so it's been very very important uh, for NATO to be aware of this this old threat taking new forms. But then there are other there are other threats um, emerging technology, for example. Now that can be opportunities, new opportunities for for military capacity and capability developing. But we also then have to be aware that. The there could be some really unforeseen challenges that, again, could bite NATO. The world looked very different when NATO was formed back in 1949, and the threats, as you've accounted here, are very different today. What does NATO have to do to adapt to the new threats? Is there a particular place where it should focus? I mean, there's even the case of NATO member Turkey buying Russia's 
air defense system. Some might say that's a threat. First of all, NATO has to confront the resource threat. And the Trump administration, President Trump himself, has been very clear and firm about this, that NATO needs to step up in terms of defense burden sharing. In the Wales summit in 2014, all of the NATO allies agreed that they would be spending 2% of their gross domestic product on defense by 2024. And we are not there yet. It's getting better. We're getting to the point where about half of the allies uh, are are spending 2% of GDP. But unless there are adequate resources, again, these new challenges cannot be confronted. So I wanted to put that front and center as an area where there's still work to be done. Now, you mentioned Turkey. I want to begin by saying that Turkey is a really valued ally from the perspective of its operational contributions. It's hard at work in Afghanistan and Iraq count on Turkey once again in in the K-4 operation uh, in the Western Balkans. They are very uh, effective at providing uh, operational capability and capacity for NATO. There's no question we have had difficulties with with Turkey in recent years. They purchased the S-400 system from the Russian Federation. That system is never going to be interoperable with NATO systems. And from a NATO perspective, although we always say countries have a right to decide for themselves what kind of weapons they want to buy, but the flip side of that coin is from a NATO perspective, they should be interoperable with NATO systems so that they can help to provide our defense effectiveness on behalf of the whole alliance. But isn't it concerning it bought something from Russia, which, as you just noted, is more of a frenemy than a friend? <laughs> well, I would say that a number of our Central and Eastern European allies still continue to deploy Warsaw Pact era equipment. So there is Warsaw Pact era equipment in the alliance, but it's obsolescent. It needs to be gotten rid of. It needs to be modernized. So that is uh, a reality of the situation. Buying new equipment from Russia, as Turkey has done, is a matter uh, of concern, but it is focused from a NATO perspective, NATO institutional perspective, on whether or not that equipment can be interoperable with other NATO systems. NATO has grown from its original 12 members to, I believe it has 29 members Correct. now. Uh -huh. And there have been some who said that it shouldn't really be any larger. Is it time to stop NATO expansion or should NATO continue to welcome other members? Uh, NATO enlargement is enshrined in the Washington Treaty, which is our uh, foundational document from 1949. And essentially, that says if there is a European country that can contribute to the general defense, wishes to join NATO, that's very important, mm -hmm. and all other NATO allies agree, then there should be a process to work toward that uh, country becoming a NATO uh, ally. And indeed, that is exactly the way we work. So no, we don't shut doors. And we don't say it's time to stop the enlargement process. Process. We are still uh, working with several countries who, in Bucharest in 2008, NATO decided uh, should be NATO members, and they are all working in that direction. The Republic of North Macedonia, we hope within a very few months, will become a full-fledged member of NATO. They're already well through the process. Uh, Ukraine and Georgia require some additional work, some additional reform efforts. Mm. Let me circle back to the NATO defense spending point that you brought up and saying that the resources are, are really critical in order for NATO to do what it needs to do. Is there still resistance amongst NATO members to boosting 
the percentage of spending or has everyone agreed that, yes, this is something that has to be done no matter how painful it may be? That's the ironic aspect of all this is that all NATO allies agreed in 2014 at the Wales summit that they were ready to to make this pledge mm-hmm. to, by 2024, be spending 2% of GDP on defense. And of that amount, by the way, 2% was to be spent on new uh, investment and mm-hmm. dealing with obsolescent mm-hmm. equipment. Mm-hmm. So uh, allies agreed on that. It was a consensus decision. But then they are democracies. They do have to deal with uh, their different political parties. They do have to deal with ministers of finance who sometimes have different priorities. So we also understand that NATO is an alliance of democracies. That's a good thing from our perspective. Mm -hmm. But again, NATO says, you made that promise, you made that decision, get on with it. And then the countries have these political issues to Mm -hmm. address. Their own internal domestic domestic issues. Let's uh, talk about the alliance structure because there has been some criticism of the current U.S. administration about maybe placing less of a priority on international alliances. Is that really an issue? Is the U.S. still a leader of NATO or the leader of NATO as it's traditionally been seen? Are international alliances still as important as they once were? This is an issue that President Macron of France uh, pulled front and center with a, an interview he did in The Economist magazine back on November he 7th. Brain, brain he dead. said NATO is brain dead. I don't agree with that at all because I know, and indeed he said in that same interview that NATO is really operationally very effective and does a good job at commanding operations and uh, is working well on interoperability. So even Macron himself mm-hmm. praises the military capacity of NATO, but I think uh, he was raising a question about political commitment inside the alliance and indeed the question whether or not Washington and the Trump administration continues to be as politically committed to the alliance, to its famous uh, Article 5 commitment in the uh, Washington Treaty. We say uh, it's the all for one and one for all. Attack on one is attack on everyone. Correct. Absolutely. So uh, Macron raised questions about that. And so uh, there are, I think, uh, many people uh, looking at this, this set of issues. I take a very pragmatic view of this, and that is despite uh, some remarks from time to time, people also quote President Trump during his election campaign saying that NATO is obsolete. But what I see is actual evidence of the U.S. being more engaged and involved in NATO, not less. The last U.S. tank left uh, Germany in 2013 as part of the so-called peace dividend, but then that turned around again in 2014 when uh, the Russians seized Ukraine. And now we have a new U.S. armored brigade back in Europe again with uh, with a number of tanks there. So I see not only that kind of hardware and equipment coming in from the United States to NATO, but also bigger investments in terms of, of dollar amounts. So I think that I would say the U.S. is putting its money where its mouth is. And let's talk about something that you focused on during your time at at NATO, and that's the importance of gender equity, something that NATO has put front and center. And uh, I think that you probably were responsible for some of that uh, prioritization. Why did it take so long, I guess, for an alliance of NATO size to recognize the importance of having women front and center? in the policy efforts? Well, first, I do want to underscore that we have done a great deal in recent years on the so-called UN Security Council Resolution 1325 Agenda for Women, Mm -hmm. Peace, and Security to support women, peace, and security. I've been so proud at 
the work we've been able to do in NATO on this matter with new action plans in place, with new implementation efforts going on. We have just completed also our sexual exploitation and abuse policy. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of doing. I frankly, in answer to your question, think it's taken so long because NATO is at its heart a military alliance and military organizations don't always think first about issues of gender equity, issues uh, of support and uh, Defense of civilians, for example, uh, has been one where you know NATO has had to do some some hard work over the years in in Afghanistan, and I think part of it is real operational experience defending the rights of uh, women and children, particularly in in armed conflict, but also there are issues to do with making sure that. Everybody understands what the rules are and also what the reporting requirements are and is really paying attention. That's why it's good not only to have stated policies but to have implementation plans tied up with training. And so everybody around the institution across NATO and in our military establishment also gets what it needs to implement these policies. And it can't possibly have hurt to have a woman as the Deputy Secretary General, and you are the first woman in the alliance's history to hold that position. Well, thanks for that. I don't want to take all the credit for what we've been able to do on on women, peace, and security in recent years. We have an absolutely great special representative of, of our Secretary General for these matters. Claire Hutchison, her name is, and she's super effective. But I don't think it hurt that uh, I was the first woman deputy secretary general of NATO. I pay attention to these issues. I did my best to mentor women throughout the organization. And uh, yeah, sometimes it was rough sledding, but I've been pleased to see in recent years that a number of the top leaders at NATO headquarters are seized of these issues now and really trying to do their best to advance these issues inside the alliance. And you've spoken out a lot about how important it is in international security to engage women women in the process at all levels. We see this day in, day out in the most effective peace processes that are going on. If you look at the peace process in Northern Ireland, for example, that's been uh, underway for some time now, but the engagement of women there was so important, and the research supports it. If there are women at the table in uh, a peace process, the peace process is likely to survive and to continue to be implemented. If women are absent, the opposite occurs. So it's just good policy. And are you hopeful or, or do you foresee this continuing to be a priority for NATO even though you're not there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know um, I left behind a merry band of senior women uh, who we call ourselves the women of mass destruction. It was a bit of a joke. But uh, honestly, there is a good uh, band of women leaders in the organization who will be continuing to work these issues. But more importantly, the entire leadership of the organization from Jens Stoltenberg, the secretary general, on to the assistant secretaries general who are very committed and very aware now. I think that was part of the problem. They weren't really aware uh, as they should have been about these these issues of, of gender and gender equity. I want to pivot a bit to your career before you were at NATO. You were the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security uh, before you went to NATO, and you were the U.S.'s lead negotiator on the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty known as New START. For our listeners who may not be familiar with New START, talk about that, what it is, and the fact that it's set to expire in, I believe, 2021, and the concerns surrounding uh, that quickly approaching expiration date. 
New START is part of now a long tradition of uh, work with the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation to limit and uh, control nuclear weapons starting in the early 1970s with the first strategic arms limitation talks. But New START draws directly on a very effective treaty that was entered into force in 1994, the so-called START Treaty, First Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. And uh, that treaty, when it entered into force, there were about 12,000 operational warheads on each side, and it brought the numbers down by about half. Uh, there was a Treaty of Moscow, 2002, brought a the numbers down again. And so from 12,000, today with New START being fully implemented at this moment, the reductions have been, have been accomplished. We are down to 1,550 deployed warheads. So it's a steady reduction since 1994 to today. I think it's a proud accomplishment for both the United States and Russian Federation. And uh, my view is that it's in the U.S. national interest to continue uh, the treaty in force for another five years. We negotiated the treaty so that it could be extended by five years without having to go back to the Senate again, uh, nor to the Russian uh, parliament uh, as well. So I think, frankly, to my mind, that's a no-brainer because the U.S. is working to modernize its own nuclear uh, arsenal over the next decade. And it the, the main purpose of having a treaty of this kind is predictability. And so if we can have this treaty remain in force for five years, it will give us a predictable environment in which to modernize our own nuclear forces. And to me, that's a no-brainer. But there's a concern that it might not be renewed. Or am I wrong about that? Well, the current administration, the Trump administration, uh, has been keeping the question open. They're looking at it. They say they want to uh, to negotiate a new treaty. I think that's a very worthy goal. They're, they say they're interested in also drawing uh, China to the table. Uh, my view is uh, you know, they can go ahead and extend New START because the way the treaty's written, New START can either be extended for five years or it could be superseded at any time by a new treaty. So mm -hmm. if they go ahead and extend it and in another two years' time they get a new treaty finished, they're not stuck with New START. They can, they can move on to the new treaty. So to my mind, again, it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And you were the lead negotiator for the original. What was that like? Well, I will say I also worked as a very, very young expert on the START negotiations in 1990 and 1991. It was very, very good for me, excellent experience. I, I learned a lot during that period. And I always said I'm so grateful I had that time as a young expert or I wouldn't have known what to do when I actually became the boss. But uh, it was a good experience. I had had the good fortune of being uh, the director of the Carnegie Moscow Center between 2006 and 2008. So I knew uh, my counterpart. We'd worked together uh, in Moscow. I was in the think tank world. He was mm -hmm. in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, by the way, now Ambassador Anatoly Antonov here in Washington. But at that time, he was uh, the director for disarmament affairs in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So uh, I think it was beneficial that we knew each other, we'd worked together, and that helped uh, for a successful negotiation. And were there any, any challenges in the negotiations because you were a woman negotiating? Well, I was the first. And uh, you were the first. I was the first. And so frankly, yeah, the Russians not always all that comfortable uh, having 
a woman on the other side of the table. I used to tease them to, that they needed to bring some women to their side of the table as well. And they had some excellent women lawyers and, of course, always interpreters, very, very good. So I was always teasing them that they needed more women on their side of the table. I will also say, though, there was a bit of skepticism on my own team to begin with and some of the Pentagon guys saying, oh, can, you know, I could tell they were saying among themselves, can she really do this? So uh, it helped, again, that I had uh, many years of experience working on uh, nuclear issues at Rand Corporation and uh, inside government as well as out. Hopefully things have changed in the ensuing years that this would not be a problem in any extension or renegotiation of a new treaty. I hope not. Um, honestly, it's not only I who was present on the U.S. delegation, but we had a, a really good group of experts, including a number of women experts from from DOE particularly, but also from the DOE laboratories and, and also uh, some from DOD as well. And uh, if, to my mind, it should be a no-brainer because there are so many talented women out there and so many who are experts on these matters. Well, let's look to the future. What's next for you after NATO? So I will be uh, leaving uh, for Stanford in January, landing there, looking very much forward to it. I'll be at the Freeman Spoley Institute as a Payne Distinguished Lecturer and also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. I'm hoping to write a book about my experience negotiating the New START Treaty, negotiating not only with the Russians but also with the Senate to bring it through the ratification process. Anything else in the book? Any personal stories that you will share? Uh, I'm sure about your... there will be some personal <laughs> stories in there. But, and you'll uh, change the names to protect the innocent and the guilty? <laughs> well, I don't know. What I hope to do actually is to work very, very closely with some of the key figures uh, in the negotiations who are also good friends as well as colleagues. And uh, well, we'll see uh, what they think about what I have to say. And then they can decide whether they want to be named or not. <laughs> <laughs> and one final question for you. I'm sure there are lots of young women professionals who may be listening to this podcast and learning about your career. What advice do you have for young women who may be interested in nuclear issues and may be wanting to follow your path? I always say uh, my top advice to any young person, female or male, is never apologize. I think young people often feel like when they take the floor, they have to say first, well, I'm not sure I'm right or not, but, and then they go on and say what they have to say. I had a graduate professor who stopped me right there when I said, I don't know what I need to say or not. Maybe I'm not right. He said, stop right there. Never apologize. Just say what you've got to say and move on from there. So that's my top advice. It's served me well the last 50 years. It is very sound advice. And Rose Gottmuller, what an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.